you don't need to know exactly what happens, but you do need to know what type of book you're writing. You need to know where it's set. You need to know the main characters and their conflict and on what they desire. Welcome to Rights for Women, a podcast all about celebrating women's voices and supporting women writers. I'm Pamela Cook, women's fiction author, writing teacher, mentor, and podcaster. Before beginning today's chat, I would like to acknowledge and pay my respects to the Dharawal people, the traditional custodians of the land on which this podcast is being recorded, along with the traditional owners of the land throughout Australia, and pay my respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. And a quick reminder that there could be strong language and adult concepts discussed in this podcast, so please be aware of this if you have children around. Let's relax on the convo couch and chat to this week's guest. Hi everyone, welcome to another episode of Rights for Women. If you're watching this on video on either YouTube or the Rights for Women website, you'll see that I've got quite a different background. I'm actually in a bedroom, (laughs) downstairs bedroom at my daughter's house in Milton in Little Forest, visiting the grand boys and uh, yes, squeezing in a chat while I'm down here. So hence the very different prison cell-like background. It's a room that's underneath the house. It's brick and only really used by myself when I come to visit. So it's quite unfurnished. Anyway, hopefully the sound is good and everything else is as normal. So welcome to this episode, and my guest today is Joe Riccioni. Joe studied English at Leeds University in the UK and graduated with a master's in medieval literature. She fell in love with Icelandic saga and wrote papers on the Arthurian and Robin Hood legends, all of which have influenced her fantasy writing. Funding her reading habit has taken many forms, and jobs all over the world have included being a painter and decorator, a potato chip grader, a teacher, a corporate trainer, a bookseller, an editor, and a manuscript assessor. Currently, when not working on her own novels, she manages to teach both sex ed and creative writing, although not at the same time. Jo has written award-winning short stories, one of which, Can't Take the Country Out of the Boy, has been optioned for a short film. Her first novel, The Italians at Cleats Corner Store, was signed by Scribe in Australia and published here and the UK where it won a fiction category of the International Rubri Award with the title The Italians and was long-listed for the New Angle Prize in the UK. Jo's a Sydney girl, and I first met Jo when she worked at Bucaccino, and our paths have crossed quite a few times since. She's on the northern beaches with her family and her gorgeous border collie and has the most amazing she-shed writing studio. But we're here today to talk about her new release, The Branded. It's a page-turning dystopian fantasy, which has a kind of YA adult crossover, I think. It's the main character is some in her teens or a young woman. But even though it's not the genre I would normally choose for myself, it is an absolutely page-turning book and I couldn't put it down. So I'm really excited to be talking to Joe today on the Convo Couch. Joe Riccioni, welcome to the Rights for Women Convo Couch take two because I've just realised I didn't press record the first time. <laughs> really great book, The Branded, we are here to discuss today as well as your entire publishing career. And I just wanted to start with asking you, Joe. You in your bio, you mentioned that you've always had this fantastic love of reading. You didn't really get into writing as a child, but you've done lots of different careers and you've ended up now 
writing a brand new fantasy book, The Branded. So how did you get to be here as a writer? Okay, so I did do literature at uni and I stayed on and did a master's in medieval literature. So that's where my love of things medieval and fantasy comes into play. But I never really thought I could write or be a writer until I had my children in my 30s and I was at home. I found myself, I'd gone from my degree into teaching and then into a corporate job. And I'd given up that corporate job to stay at home with my children, but I needed something else for my brain. And my sister actually put the idea into my head. She said, like, why don't you have a go at writing? Because your emails and letters home over the years of being away overseas have been really funny and entertaining. So I'd just bought a new laptop at the time because I'd had to give my work one back. So I thought, new laptop, new notebook. (laughs) And us were aligning everything. And then I started writing a short story. And um, my short stories did quite well. And I'm one of them got selected to be in the Best Australian Short Stories collection that was being edited by Kate Kennedy at the time. And I met Kate at a festival and she was brilliant. She was, she was so nice, so encouraging. And she said, look, if you've got more short stories, send them to me. I'll send them to my editor, who happened to be Aviva Tuffield at the time, who was working at Scribe back then. And Aviva said, look, send me some more. And I didn't have enough really for a collection. So I went away and worked on them. But at the same time I enrolled in this, my girlfriend, Bob said, I'm doing this Sabre Novel Writing Academy, which is the first year they're running it. And there's one more place left. And I think it's got your name on it. I signed up and I started writing, had been working a little bit on a novel idea. But as soon as Aviva found out, she said, give me send me your novel because I'm, novels are easier to publish than short stories. So I did. I only had about 20,000 words. And she said, I want to sign it before Fantastic. even written it. Yeah. So I think the stars aligned basically because Kate introduced me to Aviva. Aviva knew I was on this novel writing academy. And at the end of that Sabre Academy, you meet agents and publishers. And I think Aviva had already thought, oh, no, I've got my, I've already found this. <laughs> not having mm. anybody else snap her up. So I think she, she, when she was very encouraging, it was, it was like having a mentorship, really. I took a long time to write that novel. I was like a year over deadline. Yeah. So I wasn't very confident. Yeah. <laughs> I wasn't very confident in what I was doing, but I felt like Scribe, ENC, and my other editor were brilliant and really took me under their wing. And I got that novel out. But that novel was very close to my heart. It was about really loosely inspired by my family history and I felt like I needed to get that out and I needed to do that because it'd been the dream to write about that amongst my family my family had already said you should write that novel because it's so interesting mm. and obviously I've fictionalized a lot of the history and, and just put some of the facts in but it was quite cathartic to write about that but then I this is a long way of saying that I went around the houses basically in my novel writing because then I went away. I won some residencies because that book did okay. It won a, an award in the UK and got shortlisted. Yeah, somewhere. brilliant. And um, so I so sorry, what, what kind of genre was, was that? Was that like more in the literary? Yeah, near historical historical fiction. Yeah, it was a little towards the literary end, um, but packaged up. They packaged it up like women's fiction, so it sold more. (laughs) Yeah, handy. Yeah, and so it did quite well. And then for a a debut and with a small publisher, and then I won some awards to go and write my second novel. I was away writing it, and I'd chosen something that was really close to me, close to home, and I don't think I was really ready to write about that. I was too too close for comfort. And 
I really struggled with this second novel and I ended up becoming really unhappy with it and it felt really, I often use the word turgid. Like wading. <laughs> Great word. Yeah, you know, wading through molasses. It was awful. And my writer's group was saying, look, Joe, this is making you miserable. Why don't you go away and just write something for fun? And at the time I had a teenage daughter, I was constantly reading her young adult fancy novels because ah. I secret pleasure. And so I'd often, I'd had this idea for a long time, way before The Handmaid's Tale came out as a movie, as a series, that I wanted to, I remember reading The Handmaid's Tale in a feminist perspective on literature course that I was doing at uni back in the 80s. And it only literally been out, published about six or seven years at the time. I remember thinking that would make a great young adult novel. But I also was studying, back then, I was studying a lot of Syrian legend and the Robin Hood legend and right. all these airwolf and all these amazing medieval stories, which were all about men. And I was thinking, where are all the women? There wasn't much women's fantasy back then. That's all been rectified now. Mm. There's so many great authors doing brilliant medieval fantasy with women characters, female characters. But I wanted to do that, but I, wa I was really interested in this whole idea of fertility as a commodity. And I wanted to somehow merge those two ideas together. So I started on this fantasy novel and it just poured out of me compared to the original oh, novel. It was so much fun. I had so much fun writing it. And I was like, what am I doing making myself miserable with this? <laughs> When I can still turn a beautiful sentence and really enjoy my language and everything, but make it in a plot-led, fast-paced Yeah. So isn't it interesting, all those different elements that you've mentioned, your studies in medieval literature and the handman's tale and the feminist sort of angle that you were interested in, how just over time, all that's obviously just been sitting there bubbling away in your brain. And when you started writing, as you say, it just poured out of you. Yeah, yeah. I think stories are like that. Stories need years to percolate. I say that when I teach short story writing, that short stories don't just... I'm really dubious of these writers who come on after the event and go, I'm sitting on a train and this kid peers to me with this scar across their forehead. And <laughs> it's kind of like really nice packaged stories about how stories were conceived. I don't think it really happens like that. I think it comes in from different angles. I think mm. there's little ideas that merge with other ideas. And, and I think it takes time for all those things to come together to conflate. Yeah, definitely. Just on the short story, before we get on to talking more about the branded, that short story form is quite an art in itself, isn't it? And yeah. I'm interested in how did you find going from, you were obviously quite skilled at that. You were get, being chosen for best short stories, winning awards and things and having your short stories published. How did you find that transition from writing short to then writing long form? Yeah, it's partly why I went on the Faber, I signed up to the Faber Academy because I'd been working in the short form for so long and I wasn't sure how to go about writing novels, only from my reading of novels. So I wasn't really sure how to go about it. And I think that course gave me a lot of, it put into solid form, things that I knew instinctively and it underlined, underscored that. So things that I was doing, it confirmed that, yeah, that's what you need to do. To but there was also some key moments in that course where my tutor, James Bradley, was, I was, you have a couple of one-on-one -on -one sessions with your tutor 
And he was, I was saying to him, look, I've got to this point in the book where I need something to happen. Like the stakes aren't high enough and I don't know where to go. And I don't want to do the cheesy thing and have someone kill someone. <laughs> and he goes, no, you absolutely do need that to happen because, <laughs> because that is real tension and conflict. You need to dramatize things. You need to up the stakes. So yeah, if in doubt, go with the extreme action. And if it's not working, you can tone it down later on. But so I remember there were some really great light bulb moments there. And the other light bulb moment I had with James was he got us to write our blurb for the book mm. very early on in the piece, like in week four or something like that. And I was like, oh my God, I don't even know what my book's about. And that was the whole point. None of us knew what our books were about. How are you going to write it if you haven't least consolidated that aura or atmosphere of the book? So you're not, you don't need to know exactly what happens, but you do need to know what type of book you're writing. You need to know where it's set. You need to know the main characters and their conflict and on what they desire. And that's, you need those key factors to write the blurb. And when you get lost in that saggy middle, somewhere around 40,000 words, I'm there at the moment with my yeah. current project. <laughs> you can actually go back and read that blurb and remind yourself. It's like a little roadmap of where you're going. And of course, it's again that. It's this kind of feeling you get about the novel. I think every book you write has a certain aura about it or an atmosphere. And sometimes you forget that when you're writing, you need to go back and remind yourself and the blurb can do that for you. Yeah, no, I agree. I think that's a great idea, that whole blurb writing before or very early on, at least. And like you say, it keeps giving you direction. And it's also really forces you to hone in on the turning points of the story, I think, yeah. and what's going to appeal about the story to a reader. Yeah. And also reminding yourself that this is a story you need to attract readers with. Your book is a commodity that needs to sell. Where's your point of difference? Where's your hook? Where, how are you going to get your readers in to yeah. the story? So it's and not just about what you want to write about. It's not just about themes that interest you. It's how are you going to present those themes in a way that other people are interested in them too? Yeah, exactly. So just an, another quick question about the short story thing, Joe. What sort of skills that you learned in short story writing do you feel really have helped you with novel writing? I guess the flip side of that previous question. Yeah, I think one of the things is that less is more, that you definitely have to do that with short story writing because short stories are more like a you're peeking through the keyhole at a moment in time. You don't need all the answers right then and there. You let the reader work out a lot of stuff. Every word counts in a short story as well. So, because you're often on limited word count as well. Um, so, yeah, less is more. And I think that works in the novel. Like, I think a lot of emerging writers make the mistake of front loading their early chapters and you trying to tell everything to the reader, trying to tell and not show. The reader's with you for a good 90,000 words. So, You've got time. You've got time to do that slow reveal. You have to get the stakes high to begin with to get them interested, but you don't have to tell them everything. So I think that was a good learning point from short stories in that you don't have to tell everything up front. And then I guess the other thing was you don't have to answer everything. You can leave things open a bit. Towards the end of novels, people want them, readers want them wrapped up a bit. They want some answers. But you can leave something in the minds of the reader as well. Yeah. And I think that engages the reader more, doesn't it? Because you're leaving that space for them to enter the story. 
Yeah, and it certainly leads your work up to debate, which can be really beneficial if you want to interest book clubs. <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> How are your times at Varuna and Bundan on, Joe? Because they're always things that I've been interested in myself and I've never actually done. Yeah, yeah. I've been really lucky in that I've won four Varuna residences for different mm-hmm. first one of the first ones was for short story. It's a short story masterclass week which was amazing. And then the other three were working on short story collections and novels. And they're brilliant. Aruna has to be the top writing residency in Australia, if not one of the best ones in the world, because you you get Sheila, you get the kitchen, which, you know, especially for women and women with kids, to go away and have somebody shop and cook for you is half of finding time. It's not just the time, it's the mental energy that you need to handle all those things in your life. When you're at Varuna, you literally can be a hundred percent in your book. If you wake up at three in the morning, you can get up and write until dawn, yeah. you know, because you've got no kids and no, no day to try and cope with. <laughs> but then <laughs> morning, you can actually have an afternoon nap or you can do, you literally can do what you like for two weeks. And in fact, I did that because I always get put in the same room when I go to Varuna, <laughs> I get put in this room called the bear room. And it always, I don't know what it is, but I'm sure it's haunted, that place, that room. I've heard about this before. It gives me nightmares. Every time I'm in that room, it gives me nightmares. Sorry, Bruna, I love you, sis. I want that. (laughs) Please put me in a different room. Uh, (laughs) But it gives me nightmares and I wake up in the night. Of course, I can't sleep afterwards. And uh, I get up and write all night. Okay. Or maybe that's part of the plan behind putting you in that room, Jo. It's working. Okay, we've yeah. got on to chatting about book. Before we go any further, maybe if you can give listeners a bit of a rundown on what it's actually about. Give us the blurb. Okay, it's set in a world, fantasy world, that is like a med- medieval fantasy world, but about 100 years after a virus has decimated the population. And the members of this virus have been divided into the majority of people have scars that show they're still, they still carry the virus in their blood and that manifests itself as like a blue freckles on their skin and they're known as the branded and there's a small minority of people who are pure skinned who don't have any of the virus in them and what that enables them to do is to give birth to stronger more disease resistant children who can potentially make better armies so Mm. uh, there's a reason why the different surviving colonies are fighting over these particularly women pure women who could be potential breeders so the two main characters nara and osha are twin sisters and they've been they're living in this citadel in the far north of the continent where their women are revered these pure women are held within a citadel they're revered they're matched with pure suitors and they produce, they're just, their job is to produce children, basically. My two main characters, Nara and Osha, they're very different. Nara, they both grew up in the wilds, in the woods, and raised by their grandmother until they were attacked by wasteland raiders. And as young children, they had to flee their cabin and go and fight, take refuge in the citadel. And so they longed for the times the freedoms that they used to have. So they've tasted freedom. They know what it's like. Nara grew up as a hunter. Her grandmother trained her as a hunter. So she has a, an affinity with animals and um, is, it, it really enjoys fighting, learning to fight. She's got a best friend who's a water guard who trains her in self-defense and how to fight. But her sister is like her academic opposite. She's like a, uh, she's a 
she studies old manuscripts. She sneaks down into the archives to study medicine and early herb law. And she's trying her great ambition in life is to try and find a cure that's going to stop brand, the branded from being so susceptible to disease. What happens is they find themselves on the run from the Sistel. Zara befriends, reluctantly befriends, a mysterious dog sled driver known only as the Wrangler who helps her escape with her sister. And they, but the problem is that he's she doesn't trust him. He's like this mysterious southerner that she knows nothing about. And he seems to know an awful lot about her and her sister and their past. Yeah. So that's how the novel begins, basically. It's such a great concept, really. As I said, I was really hooked very early on. And I'm really curious, Joe. so you said you had these influences that have been bubbling around for a while and these ideas, but what was your starting point when it came to actually writing? Like, what were you starting with? Were you starting with character? Were you starting with setting? Were you starting with a plot idea? I think character and setting. So I had this image in my mind of these women being transported across the snow in this sled wagon, which was like a kind of box on skis that was being dragged by horses. And that it, they were, it was beyond their control. They're being traders by these waste and traders. So I had the, it started with that image. And then I knew I wanted to do something relating to women's bodies and women being used as a commodity for childbirth. And it's like ties into my interest in women still to this day, not having control over their bodies and their choice of things that are happening in America absolutely horrify me at Mm -hmm. the moment because my other job is I'm a sex educator. So I work with young girls a lot and I wanted to write something along those themes. The virus thing only came into it much later, but it was before COVID hit. Yeah, how spooky oh, is that? I know. My agent had read the book and had said, look, I love the book and I love the writing, but this fertility theme is a bit too close to The Handmaid's Tale. So I think you should change that to it being around a virus. And she just said it because she'd been doing some reading about pandemics. And I said, okay, that sounds like quite a good idea, but it's going to take me a while. So while in the time that I went away, like the six months that I took to go and rewrite the book, the bloody COVID hit, (laughs) like, oh, I don't know. I don't know what's going to go on with this book now that it publishes or they'll go, we're so over viruses. We don't want to touch it with a barge bar. So I just didn't know how it was going to be received. But the thing is with my book is it's not really about a virus. It's about the fallout of a and what happens with society being segregated into pures and impures, basically. So never having written a fantasy novel or not really being a reader of them to a large extent, how do you go about the whole world building thing when you're writing a book like this? Do you just start and then start to build things as you go? Do you pre-plan? How did you approach all that? Yeah, I think, I don't know about other fantasy writers, but I think the early chapters of world building are really hard. And I think a lot of authors spend a lot of time on those early chapters because what you're trying to do is you're trying to get the world across to the reader. And that's probably why fantasy novels tend to be a bit longer than other novels, because you do need that time for world building. But one of the things you've got to try and do is and I'm just pitching a course at the moment to a couple of institutions for teaching world building through action and dialogue rather than long paragraphs of explanation right. or exposition where you're telling the reader the world, which is what you don't want in a novel. You want them straight in the action and you want the world building to be incidental to 
to character development, to action, to dialogue, really. I think what you do, or what I do anyway, is I write it and then I go away and take out a whole heap of stuff or put it into dialogue or try and do it incidentally. So you're trying to get the world building in, coming in from, from an angle rather than putting it head on. Good world building should be incidental. It should feel like the reader typically knows this world with just minimal facts up front. Yeah. And then gradually you build it as you go along. And of course, even just some of the words, setting and character descriptions, I use the wastelands. Immediately yeah. I get a picture in my head, the Wrangler. Yeah. Are you using some labels like that, aren't you, that are incidentally adding to that world? Yeah. One of the things that editors will do, though, is especially editors of fantasy books, is they'll say to you, don't overload the reader with too many world specific too much world specific vocabulary so you can't have too many world unique words that are right, unique right. in your world up front in the early chapters you've got to scatter them through so that the reader isn't bombarded with new concepts early on so yeah and also you can have fun with it you can have fun building some alternative vocabulary but also oh, i love <laughs> I'm trying to come up with alternative swear words and alternative terminology and things that we use in our everyday life. Yeah, so there's a, you can have a lot of fun with it, but you've got to spread it out a bit so the reader's not bombarded with new stuff. Yeah, yeah. Would you say you're on the, I know people don't really like the terms plotting and pantsing, and I've heard lately a lot of people using the word discovery writer. So they're discovering the story as they go. How, where would you put yourself on that spectrum? Yeah, discovery. Yeah. <laughs> discovery, right. I don't plot very much at all, actually. And I think that's a downfall when it comes to series writing. I think you need to know where you're going, at least where you're heading. I prefer that, like Stephen King quote, of, it's like driving your car with the headlights on at night, roughly where you're going, but you don't know the exact, you don't know what's on either side of the, the yeah. beam. But, and you can't see endlessly into the future. That's the way I write. And I think that is, for me, it suits me because I love that moment where you're in the zone. And I think most writers have felt it at some point, those rare moments when you're in the zone and something comes left of field and it's right instinctively, this is right. And that's a gift. And you don't get that if you're plotting. If you're overly plotting, you're not giving yourself room for those things to come organically from the story. And I think that's really important that you have those, that you have room in your writing. And I think some of the best parts of my plotting have come from those organic moments of mm. just letting the story bloom. Oh. And what's that other quote? I don't know who's no surprise in the writer, no surprise in the reader. So I guess yeah. it's the same idea, isn't it? Surprising yourself, then the reader's going to find that a surprising yeah. or whatever as well. And I have tried plotting. I've tried plotting and going, okay, this is my palm card for Tuesday. And Tuesday, I'm writing this scene. And I just find it terminally boring to write like that. It's no joy because I know what I'm doing. I know exactly what I'm supposed to be writing. I think I do believe, though, in Hemingway's tip to leave your paragraphs halfway through in the end of the day so that you can come back the next day and you just finish that paragraph and it's a kind of a sneaky way into your writing without having to sit there and look at the blank page yeah uh, and that, that into the story it calls yeah. me back into the story and it, it really works for me to do that so yeah I do I guess I do know roughly where I'm going for the day 
I know what comes next. It's really funny. I don't often shuffle my writing around. You people start in the middle or they'll write the ending or they'll write a few chapters in. I'm a very chronological writer. I have to know, okay, this scene's done and now I need a scene where they're going to be out in the wild. Now I need a romance scene. Now I need something a bit more action-y, action-led. So I typically know what I need to write next for my pacing. Yeah, I think that's not plotted, but it is in my mind. If yeah, so you're blending that. And like you say, a lot of that is intuitive just from, from years of being a reader too. Yeah. You take on board all those story structures, don't you? Yeah, or a watcher. I used to be really quite strict to my students about, oh, if you're not a reader, then you're not a writer. It's like trying to be a marathon runner and never having trained. Well, people do marathons and they haven't done any training. So true. I'm starting to take that advice back a bit. And I think you do have to be a reader, but if you're a watcher and you watch series and you watch, because I'm a big TV watcher. I watch a lot of movies. I watch a lot of series. I don't watch non-fiction. It's always fiction. But I re-watch favorite films and series. And people will say to me, why are you re-watching that? You've already seen it. I'm studying stories. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And you do. I used to do it as a child. I used to re-watch and re-watch and re-watch favorite movies. And I think you are. You're cementing how story works in your mind. So I've, I've changed my sort of very strict ideas about if you're not a reader, you can't be a writer. I think if you're a watcher, I think if you're a watcher and you watch, you know, how stories are portrayed, I think you can be a writer. Yeah. You've just got to yeah, know how to wrangle. True. You've got to know how to wrangle words, though, as well. And perhaps you've got to do that without being a reader. Yeah. Yeah. So let's talk about Nara, your main character, who I see as the main character. You yeah. mentioned Asha as well, but she's just got so much backbone. And I just loved meeting her and watching her develop. How did you go about developing that character? Or was it again that something that just happened as you continued to write? Yeah. Yeah. She, yeah. The characters do keep developing all the time. Even in the editorial stage, I'm still developing character as I go along and just layering, constantly layering. But I wanted a good kick ass main character. Most, a lot of feminist fantasy now, they are strong women. You want women who've got, you don't want them to just lay down and be loather. They don't have to be fighters, they don't have to be physical, they don't have to be taking on men's roles. But I think that's what I loved about Nara is that she thinks she does have to be like a man, but in fact her strength is not that. Her strength is that she's got these other powers Mm. that men don't have. And she's also fiercely loyal and um, never gives up and has an amazing sense of humour as well. Yeah, she is a fighter and I wanted her to be a fighter. I love fighting actually, I love... (laughs) I love watching boxing, UFC. <laughs> Do you? Yeah, I'm a big, <laughs> I love fighting. Anybody doing martial arts, love it. I love the fight scenes in action movies. <laughs> Study them so that, yeah, I've got a very Hollywood perspective on my writing. I like to visualize it as a movie. Yeah, I know that's probably <laughs> quite bad to say, but I do have, yeah, been fetish from fighting. So yeah, there is quite a bit of fighting in my book. <laughs> Yeah, but it's great because those action scenes, you're really not obviously injecting that love of that really strong action into those scenes where that that happens in the book. You can probably tell that there's a section of the book, which is in part two, where um, there is, it becomes like a gladiatorial 
a gladiator's ring in a place called the cooler. And uh, Nara becomes a fighter in that ring. And that speaks to my love of gladiators. I'm half Italian. I grew up visiting Rome every summer and going to the Colosseum. And my favorite films as a kid were Spartacus and about ancient Rome and gladiators. I was absolutely obsessed. And yeah, so I just knew I had to have some kind of gladiatorial combat in my book. It's great. It's another thread, another one of those influences that, that you've brought into the story. So yeah, just strengthens yeah. it all. I wanted to talk to about, you mentioned before about this idea of women not having control of their bodies or their lives. And that's, of course, comes through from very early on in the book, The Pure women are controlled by the men and it's, as you say, it's their job to breed basically and to repopulate the world with pure-blooded children and build the world up that way. When you're writing that, you mentioned The Handmaid's Tale as an earlier influence, but it's also drawing on, I'm guessing, a lot of more contemporary things that we're seeing happening in society now. Were you deliberately feeding all those ideas into that feminist thread of the story as well? Yeah, I'm always interested in the idea of women being top. This expectation of women to actually be mothers. I'm really interested in that whole political debate or social debate that women only have value if they eventually have a child. Really, I hate that idea. And I'm also very conscious of wanting to address that. But I'm also a mother. I, one of my great achievements in life is my children and having children. And I adore, I adored that time in my life. And I feel very proud of, and I don't I think motherhood is something that does have to be valued. So I wanted to play with that dichotomy a bit in the book. Because there are two sides, two sides of a coin, but they're not. They're actually, they can be complementary as long as we're not judgmental about, about either, either one. Yeah. So I, I was always really fascinated with that debate as a young mum of those women who'd carried on working and those who hadn't and who's got the better choice or who's, who's got the more time or who's being the better mother. And it's not competition. It's a choice that we need to support. In society, and I wanted to definitely address that in the book, which I do with my two sisters, and that was something I was quite conscious of. Um, obviously, the abortion debate, although it's not abortion as such, doesn't enter the book, but mm. this idea of unplanned pregnancy does come into the book. That's a bit of a spoiler, but anyway, yeah. So, all right, nobody knows I didn't. I did want to talk about that because it's part of my job my day job sex education yeah so I wanted to talk about those things and I did it does terrify me this idea that we would start to pick the babies that we conceive you know which ones are good mm. and which ones aren't good or whether we want boys or girls or well that's right and that's happening isn't it yeah. choosing the the embryos based on the gender and all that sort of thing yeah and genetic testing to yeah. make sure they're the strongest they don't have genetic diseases and stuff like that which is a good thing but also a bad thing as well mm. because we're basically cherry picking uh the gene pool yeah so i did want to discuss those things in the book as well yeah and also then you were i'm guessing you were then implementing that advice you'd had from was it james when he said just really heighten and intensify the things that you're writing about yeah how far you can push them yeah no and i definitely think that the practice i had in my first novel with Heightening the tension. It was a war, second world war novel. There was going to be killing and rape and stuff mm. happening anyway. But to actually approach it and write it wasn't something that I had planned. But it, that's what it needed. That story needed that. And so that 
enabled me when I got to writing this story not to shy away from the tricky stuff. I remember what the moment when I realized that my one of my curators, she's gonna, she has a relationship with her, with her kidnapper, basically. I remember thinking, this is really quite unsavory and I should probably shy away from this. And it turns out he's not really a kidnapper, but I should really shy away from what I want to write about, which is I want her to be pregnant. And I decided, no, I'm going to go there. I'm going to write fearward instead of forward, which is what something that Sue will, oh, I love that, often tells her students, write fearward, not forward. Yeah, I'm like, okay, so people don't normally write about teen pregnancy in YA fantasy, but doesn't mean to say I can't. So I did. (laughs) So because teens want to read about real stuff, that is a real issue that we talk about romance a lot. We talk about sex a lot in teen books. And it's not purely teen. It's a YA adult crossover. It's definitely a crossover, isn't it? I mentioned that in my intro, actually. Yeah. 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 And I think Pantera took it on as an adult book, actually. But I think there's plenty of YA readers who really enjoy it. These are real issues. We talk about a lot of really serious issues in YA at the moment. Depression, self-harm, suicide, parents dying, brothers and sisters dying, eating disorders. All these really heavy things come up in YA literature right now. But not many people are talking about teen pregnancy, which is yeah. like age-old issues of the young of young people's lives so, yeah having sex for the first time and getting pregnant yeah. so, so it's something that i did want to talk about in the book and i didn't mm. want to edit it out yeah good on you for going there and being brave enough to do it and i think when you when you got to the point joe with writing of this book because you weren't contracted at the time with this book unlike your first book you already knew you had a publisher for it so when you got to the end and you got to the point where you thought yeah i think i've done everything i can do with this what was your next step in terms of then looking for a publisher because fantasy can be a bit of everything can be a hard sell at different times but fantasy isn't a huge seller generally or isn't in Australia just with a smaller population would you say that's correct or yeah I mean it's a better seller than literature (laughs) that that is true (laughs) no probably not quite as good as romance and um, maybe not quite as good as non-fiction as well. I used to work in a bookshop, so yeah, there's still plenty of fantasy sales in mm-hmm. Australia, but the big market is the US. For, yeah, um, yeah. And we do tend to be influenced quite a lot by what we're reading. And that's why I'm, I'm trying to really support Australian fantasy writers because we're up against, like any other genre as well, we're up against US writers as well and mm-hmm. UK writers as well. One of the things I didn't realise was that if you sold your Australian New Zealand rights, the UK, which being an English author, I was quite keen for my books to get published in the UK, which my first book did. But my, this book is unlikely unless I get really big sales because, because UK publishers include this Australian New Zealand market and it represents 40% of their sales. You've got to have big sales. If you're doing separate territory sales for your book, you've got to have big sales in Australia, New Zealand for a UK publisher to take you on. But when I'd finished writing this book, my first, I went to a launch of Jay Christoph's, one of Jay Christoph's books and Garth Nix was launching it for him. And I had a little, there was a little moment at the, during the launch when Jay was signing where Garth was on his own and I, being me, approached him and to have a little chat and pick his brains and I know that Garth used to work in the publishing industry as well as an agent and publisher and agent I think and I said to him what do you think I should do because this is my history I don't have an agent 
I published in the UK and the US for a historical fiction book, but now I've written this fantasy book. And he said, definitely get an agent, get an agent and try for the US or the UK. He said, don't actually even try for the UK. It's a mess. Apparently, I don't know quite what that meant. But yeah, he said, try for the US, aim big. So I did. I approached some agents in the US. I got quite good responses, actually, for full manuscript requests. But that no one, I only did about 10 or 15. And then they rejected. There was one who, a couple of them sat on it for ages and ages. And then I thought, oh, why don't I use this agent that tried to sell my first book in the US, Catherine Drayton? Why don't I approach her? Because I've already got contact with her. And I did, and she took it on. So I didn't really get very far with pursuing US agents, but I knew that Catherine was already a an agent that other publishers got in to sell their US rights. So I thought she'd do a good job of trying to represent me in um, America. But that hasn't happened yet, but fingers crossed, you never know. Yeah, I'd be in it to win it. But yeah, so that was how I approached once I'd finished the manuscript. I was definite about wanting an agent for this novel. My other publisher did have first dibs on my second novel, but they're not a fantasy publisher, so they didn't want it. Yeah, so I knew I'd be working with a new publisher. Yeah. Yeah, and Pintera have done such a beautiful job of the cover, haven't they? Haven't they? Yeah, I absolutely love it. It's amazing with all that gold on it. Yeah. Fabulous. Yeah, and I love the fact that they've done quite an adult cover, which obviously the YA market are going to love the gold. They're going to love the design. But if they put some kind of graphic art on the front, I think it would have flagged it for ultra younger readers. So I love the fact that they've done this hybrid crossover cover, which I really yeah. love. Yeah. No, it's amazing. How do you find the whole business side of being an author, Joe? Like the sort of mar- the marketing that obviously the publisher is doing a certain amount of marketing, but as an author, we're expected to do our own marketing, the social media. How do you find all that side of things? Is that something you enjoy? I don't know whether I enjoy it. I have a kind of a bit of a love-hate relationship with it because you're one minute, you're a, some a little hermit who locks themselves away in the shed for a year to write this thing. And then the next minute, you've got to be around look at me and do all this this promotion. So it doesn't really sit very easily. It's been a bit of a schizophrenic thing to do. But I think, yeah, you do have to do it. And I think there's been people who are showing that social media marketing can actually get you contracts and get you huge sales. This afternoon, I'm going to interview Stacey McEwen, who's just got her debut fantasy book out, Ledge, which I've just read and I'm interviewing her for your podcast, Pat. So that's her on. Yeah. And she's a classic example of someone who's used social media to get amazing sales, amazing exposure to the point of appearing on daytime TV, which is virtually unheard of for Absolutely. unless you are an airport bestseller, bestselling novel, a novelist, sorry, or have a really unusual hook. Yeah. I think we've, you've got to try and do it but my my big challenge is trying to stay genuine on social media that can be really tricky for a lot of people and a half of me looks at a lot of social media posts and I just go this is just such rubbish isn't it really (laughs) what are we doing but then the other half of me finds it quite entertaining I do enjoy some of the TikToks that I watch and I get some great book recommendations from book talkers and bookstagrammers and I hear about all different authors that I wouldn't normally have heard about, I think. So yeah, I mean, I do, I do a bit of it. I'm not very good at it. I'm still learning, still taking tips from other people. 
But I do work in and editing little video clips and I like working with Canva and putting things together yeah, like Canva. So, yeah, I'm really kind of learning and enjoying. I think you just got to do what you feel comfortable doing. We're all getting to the point where we're feeling a little bit more comfortable putting our faces on video. Yeah, I know it's taken um, a lot. I've resisted yeah. that. I resisted that because it's really hard when you get to middle age and you're, you're not one of these gorgeous Book, bookstagrammers or tiktokers and you just go i've really got to put my face on camera <laughs> do you know what cured me a little bit of that i done have done some a course and i follow a woman called sophie hannah i don't know if you said she's yes. the uk yes. thriller author and she's got this dream author program and she does these webinars and she's got this wild curly hair that she often just obviously doesn't really do anything with other than sit down and buff it a bit with her hands. Yeah. And I was watching a webinar or something that she was doing one day and she talk, was talking about this idea of putting herself out there and putting herself on screen. She said, and then I realized they're not looking at me for my hair or my face or anything. They just want to hear about books or they want to hear about yeah. writing. And I thought, yeah, you know what? You're right. Yeah. We have to get over ourselves with all that stuff, don't we? But it right. can be hard. Yeah. yeah. but And they're right. The more you put your face on things, the more engaged, engagement mm -hmm. for sure. Yeah. At one point though, just before I was about to publish the book, I felt like asking my daughter to be the face of it. <laughs> I was like, hey, how about you pretend you're Jerry Joni? <laughs> because she's got this amazing Instagrammable face as a young adult author. But she's got her own kid that she's pursuing. Can't you stop her identity? That's right. She's an amazing artist, isn't she? <laughs> yeah, she's pretty good. Yeah. Joe, the brand it is the first of a duology, is that correct? Yes. Yeah, it is. Yeah. And where are you yeah. up to now with the second book? Well, I've written it. It's done. It's with my editor at the moment, and she'll be going through structural edits on that, ready for an October to 2023 release. Timeframes, it's rolling on. I'm sure there's quite a lot of work I've got to do on book two, structurally, and then editorially, there will be two. So that's a process. And then in the downtime, in between those times, waiting for the editors to get back to me, I'm working on a new, I'll be working on a new book, still way, way too early to talk about it but it'll still be fantasy maybe it's a little bit more grounded fantasy my early pitch for it is gonna be something a bit like a cross between the name of the rose and the bone clocks so if you've read those books the name of the uh, rose they have yeah. yeah and david mitchell's bone clocks if you've got any opinions about those books and think of them um, a genre mash along those lines so yeah so that's where i'm up to i can't wait to get stuck into new, something new it's uh, exciting. So just before we wrap up, this is a question I often like to end with. What would you say is at the heart of your writing? Oh, that's hard. That's difficult. <laughs> what part of writing, my writing? I think I teach a lot. I like a good turn. I can't move on unless the sentence is good. I think that comes back down to having studied literature and having still reading a lot of literary fiction and poetry and stuff. So I think I have to have that turn of phrase as a big part of the writing. And but then the, the I'm a bit schizophrenic in that I do it to be page turning book. I want readers to stay up at night reading it. So I think pacing is really important and high stakes. And I think that's where I get a bit frustrated these days as I get older <laughs> with literary fiction because so much of it is great writing, but you just need to 
want to go on to the next chapter really quickly. And I think a lot of literary fiction books fail in that respect. Mm. And I think, you know, what I really love are those books that hit that sweet spot where they've got the pacing and the action, but they've also got those beautiful terms of phrase. And yeah, yeah. I think you do exactly that with the branded Joe. So you're on the boat with that. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Where can people find you online and on socials, Joe? Yeah, so I'm at Joe Riccioni on Instagram and Facebook, and I've got Joe Riccioni author on Facebook. I've my website www.joericcioni.com, and I'm not really much on Twitter these days. I was thinking about getting back to it. I used to be, but yeah, so mainly Instagram, Facebook, and my website. And are you dipping your toe in the TikTok world, or? Oh yeah, I am on TikTok. I've just started but yeah you can follow me on tiktok at jerry chain and i'm gonna be launching a newsletter soon as well great all right well it's been so lovely chatting to you joe and congrats on the brand it's fabulous and we look forward to hearing from you again very soon when you chat to stacy McEwen. yeah looking forward to it very excited thanks joe see you bye that was a fantastic chat with joe riccioni and Joe will actually very soon be interviewing Stacey McEwen for Rights for Women. Stacey was on the podcast a little while ago talking about her success with TikTok and BookTok and how that managed to get her the first publishing deal for her new book, The Ledge, which is just out. And Joe's going to be chatting to her about that. And just while we're talking books, a little reminder that if you want to find out any more about myself or my books, you can go to pamelacook.com.au. And if you're into ebooks and love reading digitally, my latest release, which came out last year, All We Dream, is currently on special as an Amazon monthly deal at amazon.com.au. It may actually be price matched on other platforms if you wanted to take a look, but it's only $1.49 Australian at the moment. So it's a great time to grab yourself a copy of All We Dream and have a read of that if you haven't done so yet. So thanks for listening. Have a great week. See you on the Convo Couch soon. Thanks for listening to Rights for Women. I hope you've enjoyed my chat with this week's guest. If you did, I'd love it if you could add a quick rating or review wherever you get your podcasts so others can more easily find the episodes. Don't forget to check out the backlist on the Rights for Women website. So much great writing advice in the library there. And you can also find the transcript of today's chat on the website too. You can find details on the website on how to support the podcast through Patreon and get exclusive access to the extended audio and video of the monthly craft episode. And you can connect with me through the website at rightsforwomen.com, on Instagram and Twitter at W4W Podcast, the Facebook page Rights for Women, find me and my writing at pamelacook.com.au. Have a great week and remember, every word you write, you're one word closer to typing the end.